0: Would you be surprised to learn that the first English language recipe for guacamole was written by a pirate? Would you also be surprised to learn that this same pirate was the source of the book and the source for the movie, The Mutiny on the Bounty? As interesting as that is, and it is interesting, today's episode is about the avocado. I'm talking with an expert in the avocado field, see what I did there, to learn about this lovely little fruit. As with most things, there are things we know and things we don't know, as well as things that are seen and unseen. Yes, it's like a Bastiat episode. Yep, even with avocados, there is politics. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, Episode 95. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, folks. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Mosey on over to my podcast's page, culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts, to find all the previous shows' show notes pages. Also on the podcast's page are some social media icons, where you can follow the Culinary Libertarian. Join the Eating Liberty Facebook group, or follow me on Twitter or Instagram, or subscribe to the YouTube channel. Click the support Hyperlink to find the support page which shows the icons for the various podcatchers carrying the Culinary Libertarian podcast. You will also see banners for some of my knowledge affiliates, the Tom Woods Liberty Classroom and Brian McClanahan's McClanahan Academy. Both are membership sites with portable on-the-go content in history. Rush up on the Constitution before election season, or browse the impressive course of selection from both subscriptions. Also, join Kiko's Cakes to obtain video instructions from Kiko on how to make pastries and tarts and torts in your own kitchen. Wash those dainty little delicacies down with a tasty beverage in a mug from my Cranky Without Coffee mug store, also linked On the support page. The last way you can support the show is with a click of the mouse for a rating and a review. Those kinds of actions help the various outlets find more listeners, and that grows the audience. And speaking of growing the audience, share the episodes on your Facebook feed or on your Twitter feed when you see them, and give those a like and feel free to comment. You can also send me an email for show suggestions or comments about previous episodes. My guest today is Charlie Wolk, California's foremost avocado expert. I've asked Charlie to join me today to chat about avocados. The avocado seems to keep increasing in popularity. and With that comes some issues. We'll also get into some of the interesting aspects of avocado farming. Charlie has an impressive CV in avocados, so I'll let him tell you about some of those points. Hello, Charlie! Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Good morning. Before we get rolling here, why don't you give us a bit of your background in avocados? I know you have an extensive extensive time here. What, what's going on?
1: Well, I've, I've been growing... Uh are involved in the avocado industry for over 40 years. Uh, during that time, I've uh, been elected to the California Avocado Commission uh, for several terms. Uh, I've, I've been uh, elected as the chairman of the Avocado Commission on five separate terms. And I've uh, also been on the Hass Avocado Board, which is a federal v- version. And uh, again, for several terms, I lose track of the years, and I've I've been uh, chairman of the House Avocado Board for uh, four terms, and I'm currently uh, a director on the House Avocado Board, and I'm a commissioner on the California Avocado Commission.
0: Well, that is it's an impressive resume. I think the best place to start is a little introduction to the tree and the fruit. Of course, we all know the avocado from the grocery store, and most of us, like me, until yesterday, would think that it's kind of like an apple. You know, you pick it when it's ripe. Right, but I've discovered that's not the case. So tell us a little bit about the tree and the fruit, and what's unique about the avocado on the tree.
1: Well, the, first of all, the, the tree is a, a tropical tree, tree. Its native environment is in the in a tropical uh, climate, uh, it it does well in the growing areas around the world in, in what's uh, commonly called a Mediterranean uh, climate, which is probably a little bit more mild than you would expect for a tro- pure tropical climate. Uh, the the tree is, uh, I think, very versatile. Uh, You you cannot grow a producing avocado tree from an avocado seed. Uh, You have to propagate a tree and then then graft the the varietal onto it to to get uh, what I want to call it uh, commercial or uh, edible fruit. Uh, The tree is also unique in that uh, it, it while it's always green, always has leaves on it, the, the leaves are constantly changing over, dropping old and, and growing new. Uh, the other thing that I, I've always found fascinating is that it, it has a, a male and female flower on it uh, at the same time. So you don't need pollinating trees to, to pollinate the crop. Uh, one of the other things that's unusual about the avocado tree is the, the common term is you can store the fruit on the tree Uh, for example soft fruits like peaches and plums uh, when they're ripe you have to go pick them or they'll fall on the ground the avocados you have a a much larger window uh, to harvest the crop and that was the thing
0: I, I found that very interesting I didn't know that was the case and so that was kind of a fun thing to find out Uh, You've mentioned your affiliation with the Haas Avocado Board, and I think probably that's the most popular avocado there is. If that's wrong, please correct me. When I shop here in Oregon, I find the regular standard size avocados, I think you'd call them 48s, and then sometimes I see bags of little teeny ones. The skins seem thinner, and sometimes the pit almost looks like an almond instead instead of a sphere. What's causing this difference? Is there a different variety?
1: Well, it, it sounds like a different variety, but I find it uh, surprising to, to that you would have uh, uh, green skin or, or or thin skin fruit in, in Oregon uh, because that fruit's got to come from probably Florida. You, you might have a retailer up there buying fruit from Florida. Uh, as opposed to buying the hash fruit from either California or, or the other importing countries. But, but that's what you've just described to me sounds like uh, uh, a, a thin skin. I've read fruit. your
0: blog and learned you've traveled the world for avocados. Now, you did mention the Florida avocado, which does look different than I've seen. Some of them are, are quite big in size. So, from a commercial standpoint, how many varieties are there and what distinguishes one from the other?
1: I, I, I don't, I, I'm embarrassed to say, I don't even know how many total varieties are around. I, I can remember the California avocado society when they had their annual meeting, they used to put uh, banquet tables along one wall and they would lay out, uh, avocados. Those were avocados just grown in California. Uh, three deep and they'd maybe have uh, uh, on the table and they'd maybe have uh, three or four tables of different varieties of fruit grown in, in California. They all weren't what I call commercial varieties, but they, they were grown in California. So I, I really don't know what that number is. Uh, the, the other thing is there there's a difference between what's commonly called the Guatemalan, some call it the Mexican variety, which is what the house of fruit is grown on, and which the fruit you find in California, as opposed to the fruit that's grown in Florida, which is a West Indian variety. And they're very, very different. The, to me, the only thing that's similar is the name. They, they are avocados, you know, from a scientific point of view, but they're completely different. They, they grow the West Indian varieties, generally speaking are much larger fruit. They tend to be more round than the pear-shaped fruit. Uh, and they're, they have, uh, less oil. And of course, most of the people in California or in the West. Uh, they really don't like them because they don't have enough oil. Uh, as opposed to people in, in Florida, Puerto Rico. And, uh, uh, some of the areas on the East Coast, uh, they, they don't like uh, the house avocado because it's got, quote, too much oil. Uh, so there, there's a wide range of uh, of fruits and varieties in the avocado species. I mean, I've
0: noticed the, that the Florida ones do have, and I guess the, the phrase would be, because they have less oil, it would have a drier mouthfeel. And that's one of the things that I, I actually don't care for the Floridas for that very reason. I like that sort of unctuousness that a Haas avocado has, and I think that's what most people associate with an avocado is that that just kind
1: of velvety that texture. Oh, yeah. that's uh, uh, You know, while people on the West Coast uh, or in the West uh, don't like the, the Florida fruit, And and vice versa. As a matter of fact, it's interesting because the the avocado uh, advertising and promotion uh, is making inroads into that uh, East Coast preference for the West Indian fruit. They're they're slowly but surely switching over uh, in their preferences for uh, the the Guatemalan or, or, or Mexican uh, fruit, fruit that we grow out here in well, California. Well, that's effective marketing. Yeah, well, you know, to say that it tastes better is that's in the eyes of the beholder. Sure. Uh, obviously, to to our taste, the uh, I'm it's curious better. about
0: the how long does it take for an avocado to get to picking size? Now, for us, first, we have to decide what does the picking size mean. If we're talking about the Gator eggs or the 48, but which I think 48s are coming at about half a pound apiece, so that's a good size avocado. Uh, how long does it take before the fruit can be picked?
1: Well, The, the way I would answer that uh, question is that if the flowers are pollinated in the spring, uh, nominally between prime pollinating time is between 15 March and 15 April. You have early bloom and late bloom, but primarily uh, in, in the spring, March and April. Okay, that, that flower, once pollinated, will, will not be harvested until essentially a year later. So while there might be some ready in January and February of, of the following year, most of that fruit, pollinated in March and April, will be harvested in May, June, and July of the That's following That's kind of year. amazing.
0: and It's now sort of easy to see how there is an always-present avocado in the stores because it, you you mentioned it can stay on the tree. What is the property of the tree that lets it stay on the tree without ripening? What What is that? What's happening?
1: Hmm. <laughs> My answer to that is that's just the, the tree. God did that. That's the way the avocado tree functions. The, the only thing is that that's kind of unique. In, in, in California, we have fruit on the tree 12 months a year. So we either have the fruit from the current crop or we have the fruit that's uh, starting to grow for next year's crop. And I've discovered that California is the only place that happens. It has avocados that are grown in, in Mexico and Chile and in Peru and uh, Israel and South Africa. And, I mean, all over Costa Rica, uh, Australia, New Zealand, all those other places, they have a period during the year when there's no fruit on the tree, which I find very interesting. And that causes, uh, in my opinion, a uh, a different dynamic with the tree because the tree in those other growing areas gets to have a rest in California. The trees work in 12 months of the is year. Is that a function of the
0: harvesters picking all the fruit or is it something different about the tree?
1: Well, uh, I don't know if it's different to the tree. It's essentially the same tree. Uh, i my non-scientific observation is it's the difference in the growing conditions.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Well, you mentioned growing conditions, and I do want to get into some details about growing and climate, but before I do that, let me take a moment out for a word from my affiliate. Folks, schools are getting plans made for fall, and those plans are intended to meet all the force compliance to COVID rules, which may include only two or three days of school per week, and distance learning for the other days. It hardly seems like any kind of effective curriculum. If you're looking for a curriculum for your children that will enable them to attain academic success in college, yet which frees up parents from the tasks of creating daily lesson plans and hands-on teaching, the Ron Paul Curriculum is for you. To understand how this curriculum works, type culinarylibertarian.com slash homeschool into your browser or click the banner on the show notes page. The Ron Paul Homeschool Curriculum is a college preparation program, but it also teaches students how to start a home business. It is a practical program. And, in the area of social distancing and threats from governors to go back to lockdowns, a stream of income which is transportable is vital. Students learn self-discipline as soon as they learn how to read. In grade four, the Ron Paul curriculum becomes 98% self-taught. This habit is basic to survival in college when students are on their own. They need academic self-reliance to survive. Self-discipline and self-reliance are also critical skills for daily life as a student at home, or a student at college, or as an adult on the job. Homeschooling is not what most parents experienced last academic year which was schooling at home. It was terrible and frustrating for parents and students. The Ron Paul curriculum provides all the materials, the course videos, instructions, assignments, and primary reading sources. Parents, this frees you up and makes your day less stressful since the heavy lifting is done for you. Click over to culinarylibertarian.com homeschool to start your homeschooling journey today. Give your kids the education they deserve for the success you want them to have. Click culinarylibertarian.com homeschool to start the next course in your kid's education. Call now slash homeschool. Now let's get back into the show. California is famed for sunshine and heat. Is there a point where too much heat or too much cold interferes, interrupts with the tree's ability to produce?
1: No. Yeah, I don't, I don't. I never think about uh, it, it. Its ability to produce. The, obviously, the weather extremes are going to have an impact on the tree. Uh, for example, the tree is tropical, so it it can't handle cold. Sure, it it can take a cold temperature. Uh, so we can talk about it. It can take thirty-two degree temperature, but only for a very short period of time. Uh, So if the if the temperature either gets lower or the duration gets longer, the the tree will be damaged, Uh, and the damage is going to be several things. It it might uh, damage the fruit, might cause the fruit to drop on the ground. It'll damage the leaves. Uh, uh, Severe cold, uh, those freaky storms we've had on rare occasions, hopefully no more coming, but uh, it, it actually, uh, what do you want to call it? it destroys the, the cambium layer of the bark of, of the tree. Uh, in those years when we've had cold damage, we, we've had to go in and and, and paint the trees with uh, white late, water-based latex paint. To protect them from the sun because the, the cold damage causes the leaves, the tree to drop the leaves, and, and then when the sun comes out, it doesn't have to get hot, just sunshine will sunburn the, the branches of the tree, so you have to p- paint the tree to p- protect it, and and you have the, the same thing on on the high temperature end, so sure, the tree can take uh uh, temperatures in the 90s, uh, it can even take temperatures in uh, above 100, but, but not for very long before you get damage. And that damage can be, as a matter of fact, it, it's kind of unique in that the damage from cold or heat, the symptom on the tree looks the same. So you get the leaves are, are burnt, they turn brown, they'll fall on the ground, uh, Lock the fruit off the. There, we we had uh, what two years ago that a heat wave down here, where where the the fruit on the tree was literally cooked. It was soft, soft to the touch. So did that affect a, 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 a production? Well, yeah, because you lose that fruit. But not only that, but but the tree. Uh, the, the, the tree needs time to recover. So if, if you get that damage on the tree this year uh, it, it, and, and the tree recovers from the damage, then next year's uh, flowers and pollination will be impacted. And uh, it could impact, depending on how bad the damage is, out two or three years w- with uh, reduced production. We we had a hard time dealing with the U.S. Department of Agriculture trying to get crop insurance for avocados because the, the, the bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. just could not get a grip on that kind of damage to a, to a crop. They, they understood heat and cold and hail damage, but if, if you damage the cherry trees in Michigan – and you lost that crop. Well, it was all over because next year you, you get a crop again. Well that doesn't happen with an avocado tree. Like I said, you, you may be impacted uh, at least for one year for sure, uh, maybe two and in some cases three years you have an impact from from the weather damage. I, I think I, I didn't know it was that long, but it, it's, it presents
0: a big problem. So, so far we've talked about climate and nature and the fruit, but there is another important element to avocados, and that's labor. So, this is a libertarian show, but I'm more interested in learning what the issue is right now. How does labor and the access to labor, meaning who are these workers, impact the harvest?
1: Well. That's tough to make a comment about. I I, I guess the first thing you have to understand is is that uh, growing avocados uh, is is labor-intensive because almost everything you have to do to produce the crop requires labor. Uh, Harvesting, for example, they they talk about uh, picking the fruit. Well, that, that's bending the, the, the term picking, because we really don't pick it. The, the fruit is cut off the, the, uh, uh, off the tree. So either whether you cut it, hold it in your hand, and with a hand clipper, cut the stem, or whether you use a pole w- w- that has a, a clipper and a bag on it, you, you actually cut that stem to get the fruit off the tree. And then trim the stem down so it doesn't uh, damage other fruit but but it's not picking in the sense of grabbing hold of the fruit and picking it or pulling it off the tree and all that requires labor there's uh no machine or mechanized harvesting of avocados and you know not only in california but some of the other growing countries the the trees or the orchards are on hillsides, so you, you have the uh, you know the challenge of, of the slope of the land. And all that requires requires labor. And obviously without the labor you you can't get the crop harvested. And it, it's in California it's becoming more and more of a problem. <clears throat> well when we have meetings with the excuse me, farm managers and the field men from the packing houses to to talk about the crop estimate uh, especially this past year excuse me, when we met in uh, be- before the crop, several managers and fieldmen men made the comment, well we need to talk about, not only about what crop is on the tree but what crop how much of the crop will be able to harvest? Because it's possible that the the fruit will be produced but not harvested because there's no labor. Or no, there's not enough labor. And that's uh, an ongoing problem. And that's why the emphasis uh, and efforts uh, uh, with the federal legislation uh, to get a, a law that's that's fair to everybody to provide the necessary labor to harvest our crops. And, and it's not just avocados, you know, a lot of other crops that are, that are labor intensive. Well, I
0: am curious, and I apologize if this is unfair, how would you, if you could, fix the system of labor for agriculture? So assume you have carte blanche to fashion a good system for the workers and the
1: farmers, what would you do? Well, to, uh, to me, it's relatively simple. You, you have a, a, a system or a mechanism to, to allow the workers into the country uh, and, and then have a way of, of tracing them or, or tracking them so that they, they either stay here for whatever those conditions are or when those conditions are over, they they leave the country. They go back to their country of origin. Uh, but in, in this modern day, it, it always strikes me as strange that we don't have the ability to do that with our uh, customs or immigration department. And as far as I'm concerned, we're the only country in the world that's, uh, that is very... Uh, uh I don't know what the word is generous of letting people come into our country. you know for, for example, people don't realize that there are there are a lot of folks here illegally who came into the country legally and the best example is student visas. They come on a student visa and they never leave and and, and the system has no way of, of tracking them
0: yeah i th- I think there's. I'm not not to quibble with your word choice, but I think the difference is that it's not that they lack the ability, that they lack the incentive or the desire. There's something else impeding that decision, and that's a whole nother show. But I, I don't disagree with the general premise of your comment.
1: I'm not so sure I understand your comment.
0: Well, I don't. I think the ability exists. I think I think it's perfectly possible to track the people they want to track. I think they're disinclined to do that for some political reason.
1: When you say they, who's they?
0: The federal government. Well, the legislators. The they somebody is somebody is benefiting from not doing this, and the benefit from not doing it is greater than the benefit from doing it.
1: Well, that, that, that might be. I, I I think. Well, since you're asking my opinion, I'll give you my opinion. my My, my opinion is is that. The general perception is that uh, illegal immigration is perceived as being evil. Okay, and and so therefore, it it, it's a political risk for a legislator in Ohio or Pennsylvania or any of those eastern states. They, They they they. don't make the connection they they don't see the need they don't experience that uh, of that requirement for that labor so because their constituents uh, view th- that agricultural labor is threatening uh, carpenters and uh, computer uh, programmers and everything else th- they don't want to touch it politically so it's, it's easier for them to do nothing and Obviously, the record is very clear. There hasn't been significant immigration legislation since 1986. And that was a fight to get that done. So that that's what uh, uh, I, I think is one of the root causes. The, the other thing is, is, is the perception. And, and you got to get out of the West. The, the West has a better sense of that because agriculture – in other parts of the country, with some exceptions, are not labor-intensive. You can grow a lot of wheat in Kansas without having to have too many people. You can't do that with avocados or lemons or oranges or uh, broccoli. Name whatever you want. All that takes takes labor. And, And so... We're getting to the point, I I was interviewed by a a, a TV station about the the immigration issue and so forth. And and the president had made a statement about that we wanted to be sure that we had uh, uh, people, immigrants who were contributing and and value to the the country itself. And I said, yeah, you know what? Sooner or later, people are going to come to grips that, that that immigrant who works in agriculture is become going to be more valuable than a computer programmer because we're producing food. So you've got to think about that. And, uh, and, I, and I guess in all fairness, I think we're beginning, we, the country, is beginning to get a grip on that that they, they have to have a different view. You know, it's the same thing. I don't know how many times I've, I've gone through the thing with uh, in interviews with people saying, well, yeah, all that that agriculture labor is, is unskilled. I said, yeah, you think so? I'll well, tell you what, you, you come and do what they do and tell me after working for a while whether that's a skill or not a skill. Just because it's it's physical or manual labor doesn't mean it's unskilled. But folks have a hard time dealing with that. Try let's pause a moment while the
0: tasting anarchy folks talk about their podcast. Mm -hmm. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast.
1: Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, TastingAnarchy.com or TastingAnarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find
0: out how much government is in your drink. Now, avocados have had quite a run, and it seems not to be stopping. The detractors of increased farming cite destruction of ecosystems as a problem, as well as planting a jungle tree out of place. There are also concerns about water use. Those seem reasonable and valid concerns. What is the point of discussion for the consumer?
1: Uh, Could you say that again? I'm not so sure I understand the question. Well, with the threats to
0: the ecosystems and, ex- and excessive water use, so so the detractors would say, what is how, how do we make the consumer feel better about buying avocados if if they're plowing under pine forests in Mexico to plant more avocados?
1: Uh, I I don't know if I have an answer to that. Uh, well, that might yeah. be the answer. You, you know, you you have, you know, you, you're talking about avocados. You you can apply that to many other commodities, and I, I suppose the simple answer to that is buy American. And the only thing is, if you talk about avocados, we can't produce enough to to satisfy the, the demand in the United States. As a matter of fact, there, there's not enough avocados produced worldwide to satisfy the worldwide demand so I, I don't know how, how you get there uh, I, I really don't
0: well I don't know if I know the answer that I think for the purposes of curtailing demand you increase the price I know that uh, a, a couple of restaurants I'm not sure when in the last couple of years in Great Britain has stopped serving avocados entirely because their objection to the uh ecoforest or ecosystem destruction and the excessive water use. They're saying that we're working for climate change by not serving avocados. And as a as a restaurant, they're certainly free to make that choice. But also I think if you if the price increases, you'll adjust people's
1: behavior. Well the, the only thing is when you apply that economic model to avocados, it doesn't work. We've, we've increased the supply and the price has gone up, which is the exact opposite of Economics 101. So, and, and the, the, the other thing is that there's, uh, how do I say you you, you got to be careful uh, from from a philosophical point to start having the government dictate what you can buy or in my case what you can grow or how much water I should use. Uh, you you get the government fiddling around in there, and you really have the system screwed up. <laughs> You're on the right show for that comment. I can tell you that. No, I'm I agree with you.
0: The government. The the general government doesn't have a place in this conversation. Um, that's those are decisions made for at least state governments and the people who are impacted by that. And that's and you're right. Raising the price alone isn't a fix all. There are always unintended consequences, and and those may be worse than the fix. And so I was I was not a completely earnest. Solution, because I don't know what the, it's not as easy as one thing. It like, just can't be the case. But I think that there's something to look at in that possibility anyway. Uh, let's move to a short answer series of questions. And this is simple, no math or science involved. There's just a couple of kind of fun questions I like to ask my guests. Of the five flavors, sweet, salty, bitter, sour, and umami, which one do you enjoy the most?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I've never thought about it that way. It's probably because I don't I I don't think or I don't make a a food choice based on one specific uh, taste criteria. I I may make a choice based on a pleasant taste, but That pleasant taste may be salty today, and it may be sweet tomorrow. That makes sense? Yeah. What's your favorite food? Hmm. (laughs) I know it sounds self-serving, but my first reaction was avocados. What's your least favorite food? Least favorite? Arugula. What gets you excited? Hmm. I don't know. I never think about food that way. Food is please, pleasing, and I, I suppose it's probably because I I enjoy a, a variety of flavors, and I've had the opportunity or good fortune to, to have uh, had food from other places around the world from being there, not from somebody preparing it in a local chef in a local restaurant, but being in other countries and eating their food. So uh, I I just probably have a little different perspective on on food and food choices. What turns you off? Uh, From food, you mean? Uh, Food or otherwise? Mm, Turns me off. Probably people doing dumb things. What sound do you love? Hmm. I guess uh, a, a soft sound, whether it's music or birds, uh, water running, gentle wind, machinery or whatever, but, it, but a soft as opposed to a blaring or l- loud sound.
0: Which leads into the next one. What sound do you hate?
1: sound that I hate? Uh, I, I guess my immediate reaction to our answer to that is loud. What's your favorite food indulgence? Hmm, I don't know.
0: Never thought about it. I don't know what the answer that is. Okay, that's all right. How can people follow your work? I know you've got a, a website. How else can people? Can, uh, is there another way they can follow you besides that?
1: Well, not that I know.
0: Okay. So this is the most important question of the day. How do you ripen the hard avocados and what do you do with the ones that are too
1: soft? Well, the first part, the answer to the first part is pretty easy. You, if, if you go to the supermarket and buy the avocado and it's hard and, and you want to uh, accelerate the ripening, put, put it in, in a paper bag and you can either just put it in a paper bag by itself and close the bag down because the the ripening process is caused by ethylene gas and fruit and vegetables give off ethylene gas. So when you close the bag, the ethylene gas that the avocado is giving off it, it, uh, accelerates the, the ripening process and the more it ripens, the more ethylene gas comes off. And, and if you want to accelerate that process, then put another piece of fruit in there with it. Uh, Normally people say a banana, uh, but you can put anything else in there that essentially generates more ethylene gas. Uh, And and then on the other end, uh, too soft, uh, I, I suppose it's like beauty too soft is in the eyes of the beholder. So they're, there, there are various degrees of ripeness in the avocado that would be preferences for how you use it. For example, if you if you're going to slice it and put it on a sandwich or on top of scrambled eggs, you you would want to have the avocado to be more firm. If you're going to make guacamole and it's a little soft, uh, or quote too soft if that's the, the right word uh that'd be okay because you're gonna probably chop it up or cube it or something so it do- doesn't make any difference and, and eventually if you get to the spot where it's it's really too soft it's, it's probably going to be rancid and at that point in time the only answer is throw it away and be more attentive to your avocados in the future i have Taken some of the little too soft for our
0: preferences for guacamole and turned them into a dressing, which I thought was an interesting application the dressing doesn't like to sit around though so it's gotta it's gotta be something that uh, you use right away
1: or I better
0: recipe for brownies when you're brownies.
1: Yeah, the, the other alternative, if they're too soft, is make a smoothie out
0: of them. Ah, yeah, I didn't think about that. Good idea. All right, well, I appreciate your time this morning. I took more time than, than I think you expected, but I hope that's okay. That's fine. So thank you very much. I, I, again, I appreciate your opportunity to uh, your time this morning, and I appreciate that very much. Thank you. Yeah, have a nice day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I teased you about Captain William Dampier. I'll post a link to the article which got me on the path, as well as the link to an Amazon page with books about him and his book, A New Voyage Round the World, which made him famous. Dampier circumnavigated the globe three times. That alone is worth reading about. I did mention Charlie's blog. I'll add the link to that on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 95. Join me in the Eating Liberty Facebook group. Share your avocado recipes and pictures, and also subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Have a week. See you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com. Yeah, I I think the, I don't think there's an easy fix to the problem. Is it, it's, well, this is me editorializing to you. I think part of the solution to the problem is decentralizing the federal government. Because nobody in Pennsylvania or Ohio or Washington, D.C. has any clue what what California or Nevada or Oregon or Connecticut or Florida needs. And if you let California be in charge of California, well, California knows best what California needs. And that's what a strong decentralization would do for the needs of the places, because what California needs isn't what Michigan needs. They've got cherry shakers. They don't need, the, they need some people, but not like they do for avocados and romaine lettuce. Well,
1: I, I think another thing that's driving that now is, is that the, uh, consuming American public is becoming more and more conscious of where their food comes from and its condition. And so they're, they're becoming more open to this uh, uh, consideration or whatever you want to call it, the need for, for agricultural labor, because the alternative is their, their food will come from offshore. And, you know, if you look at the history of agriculture in the United States, what, what was our system? We always produced enough for ourselves, and then what was left over, we uh, exported. Well, uh, now th- there's more and more food being consumed in the United States that comes from offshore, and the, the uh, American consumer is, is beginning to to hesitate or question about the quality and the safety of that food that comes from offshore. And, and I think that's a good thing. Not, not that you should necessarily stop it, but that they should apply the same standard to the, the f- food produced offshore that they apply to those of us that are producing food in the United States.
0: Well, that's, I agree with that. That's perfectly reasonable. Make it a level playing field. Let the customer decide. And that's a real solution.